Welcome to the Winter Faith Podcast. My name is Andy Frazier. Thanks for tuning in. Andy's funny. Time for the show. Just tear the mirrors off the wall Cause sometimes the truth they tell Ain't no truth at all, no We look with these eyes That are quick to criticize Well, too much of this, too little of that And we bought a handful of lies Oh, mirror, mirror on the wall You ain't too fair was just yeah i you know the first time i interacted with you was through through seeing you at this conference at e3 conference and sponsored by centerpiece and like how did you get involved with that yeah um so man so i went to acu for my undergrad mm-hmm. and uh you know majored in youth and family ministry and so sally gary was a name uh i'd heard around i think probably going into uh going into ACU because that kind of ties in with my whole experience with Sally and Centerpiece in general, which was uh, my senior year of high school. I grew up, you know, Church of Christ kid, born and raised, uh, same church my whole childhood um, in Arlington, Texas. And my senior year, uh, my girlfriend, now wife, Kinsey, uh, she and I went to prom and, you know, it was a Saturday night. And so we said, okay, we'll sleep in uh, and skip class and just come to service in the morning. And we come in to service that Sunday morning, and it was like the church was on fire uh, was the vibe that we got, which was caused by one of the younger students had come out that morning during a youth group. And so everyone was just like, no one was prepared for it and everything. And uh, that was after that series of events uh, was unfolding, that's kind of where I think I first heard the name Saligari and the idea of Centerpiece, uh, which was to hear about because it was almost like a direct answer to what we had seen that morning of like no one in the church was prepared. And so then it was mm-hmm. once it sort of simmered down, we kind of realized, okay, there's, there is this, this kind of mythical resource out there called Centerpiece where uh, these conversations that have been neglected or put in the shadows for so long are actually welcome and encouraged. And so I went into ACU kind of knowing about her. Um, and I think I heard her do a, like a chapel keynote at one point, but 
uh, whenever I interned at Highland Oaks, it turned out, and actually one of the big selling points that my friend told me, uh, my friend Hunter, who grew up at Highland Oaks, he was like, yeah, you should really take the internship at, at uh, they've got this and this, like all the ministers are great, it's an awesome team, and Sally Gary offices out of there for uh, for centerpiece, and I was like, okay, well, say no more then, like anything I can I can do to get to meet Sally and like learn more because by then uh, I'd become pretty passionate about LGBTQ representation and kind of reconciliation within the church. Um, and so, yeah, I took that job. I got to meet Sally. And from there, you know, we just had a couple of conversations. And by the time that I started full time in 2016 was, uh, you know, she does the conference every other year. And so uh, she said, Hey, I know you just started, but, there's this one breakout class that's going to be about youth ministry. Would you be down to do this small little panel uh, with another youth minister? And I was like, well, sure. I am I am just about as green as I could be, but uh, I appreciate the invitation, so I'll do my best. And so, um, yeah, I got to do that. And so I've been fortunate to be asked to uh, be a perspective for youth ministry in that conversation, uh, 2016, 18, and this year. Um I guess 2018 was, well, no, I guess it was 2016, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Um, That was an interesting year. I think that was actually the first year that she asked me to do a spoken word as well, because I believe 2016 was pretty shortly after the uh, Pulse attack, and I had written a uh, blog post following that uh, attack that, was basically like a parable about like, hey, hey church, uh, we need to do better because we can't offer peace to these people, to this community that has been attacked whenever our own church buildings have been unsafe places for the queer community for years. Um, and I turned that into a poem, and so she had asked me to uh, speak that at E3 2016. And so uh, since then, that's kind of been, yeah, kind of that connection. So for people that are... You know, I think there'll be some people that won't know the Pulse attack. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, and I think it was Orlando. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was a nightclub uh, primarily for the queer community, and a uh, man walked in, and it was just like a pretty blatant hate crime. Uh, just started shooting, and I believe it was 50, 51 uh, deaths. And so um, in the wake of that, I mean, it really obviously made headlines really quickly. Um, and in the wake of that, I know at least my personal experience was seeing a lot of people um, who were in, and this is where it gets tricky because you start talking about categories, and I know that nothing's monolithic, um, but for the sake of ease, you know, a lot of conservative evangelical friends would post about like, hey, uh, this is awful, you know, whether I agree with you or not, like, I recognize this is awful, I want you to know I'm a safe person. And so that was sort of what my response was, was like, and, and based off of what, how I was seeing uh, friends that I had in the LGBTQ community responding to those kind of offers of safety and companionship of like, hey, I appreciate that. And also, I just can't really believe you because my whole life, the church has been, the church hasn't tried to physically harm me the way that Pulse did, but uh, spiritually and emotionally, uh, there was a lot of harm done too, and so trying to hold that space kind of in that middle ground, um, knowing full well too that you know I am a pastor at 
an evangelical church as well. So, like, how, how can you hold that middle space and uh, be respectful of narratives and still also try and offer some kind of hope and, and good word? So your spoken word is, I think, a response to that. Like, it's your ability to use what God has given you to try to bring hope and, and perspective to, like you said, a, a conversation and a group of people that have been in the shadows, overshadowed, neglected, abused by the church. For um, sure. Yeah. Where did the kind of spoken word come from? Is that something you've always been a part of or... Yeah, I wouldn't say always. Um, back in high school, I had one summer, I had this intern uh, named Ben who I just wanted to be. Like, at the end of the day, I just wanted to be Ben, and he was he seemed so cool to me um, because he wasn't, like a, like, a traditionally super cool guy, right? He was, like, scrawny, had a beard. He was, like, 19 years old, had, like, a full-fledged beard, wore cardigans, all this. Uh, but he also rapped, so he was, like, a walking paradox like he always was talking about rap music and he had made his own rap band which inspired me to make my own rap band which was great my friend nathan uh who is like a classically trained trained cellist uh i come up to nathan i was like you want to start a band and nathan said yeah great <laughs> so we did um and so that kind of grew out of that like ben really sold me on rap and hip-hop and poetry in general and uh I, I feel like I've always kind of had a knack for creative outlets. I would I was always drawing, especially, but around middle school and into high school is when I started writing a lot. And so uh, from creative writing came this, like, poetry, uh, spoken word situation. And, um, and there had been, like, some spoken word artists who had come to, like, some camps and things that I had seen. Um, and I wrote one, I think the first one I did was whenever I was, home for a weekend from my first year at ACU, and I had written a spoken word about uh, worship that was based on a story that one of my professors had told, and uh, my pastor at my home church, you know, kind of took a chance and was like, yeah, that could be cool, that could be a, you know, we're always looking for a way to mix up some kind of presentation, and it was well-received to people. I think it, it it's an interesting this is also part of, like, my ministry and just personality that I don't get to, like, talk about a whole lot, honestly. Um, it's just sort of assumed of, hey, it's just something Kevin does. Um, but, yeah, it's it's been really fascinating to see how people can be responsive to something conveyed through spoken word that they wouldn't be maybe through, uh, you know, a sermon or a communion thought or homily or anything like that, um, which, and I think that pulse poem is, is a prime example of that, right? If you can have, whether it's something about the rhythm or the rhyme scheme or having something that, some clever wordplay that can kind of do some of the diffusing work of a, an anxious topic, um, I think it can help people be more receptive um, and at, at the very least recognize that there's something, uh, I don't know, something worth while there and and maybe they're less likely to see it as like a rant or being so packed with like an agenda um whenever it crosses that threshold into being some somewhat like artistic um yeah but it, it's also i still get other people though who on the flip side are like yeah you gotta you're gonna have to write that down for me because i just you know i couldn't keep up or it sounds too much like rap for me and and that was you know the one that you heard was more on, on the border of like 
what I would write for a rap um, as mm-hmm. far as the speed and some of the cadence and everything. Um, and that's where it gets tricky, too, because, man, I really do think that, like, hip-hop artists are some of, like, the best prophets of our present day. And a lot of there, – there's a lot of stuff that can be tied into it. I don't want to get too, like, sociopolitical about it. But, um, yeah, it, it always kind of puts me in some sort of situation when someone's like, yeah, I really like what you do. Your Your spoken word is beautiful. I don't like that rap, though. It's too much, like, gangsters and, like, shooting people. I'm like, hey, maybe, like, the gangsters have something to teach us, too. But, uh, you know, you're 85 years old, and so we don't really need to get into that right now. <laughs> See, I think I do. I mean, we can edit out whatever if you feel uncomfortable. But I think okay. the social economic ways that we use music and creativity are fascinating. Yeah. Um, and actually is probably more interesting than any question that I have. Um, because you never know, I mean, you never know what music, you know, music's the easiest way. Music, poetry, creativity, art, how it affects people and how it brings people together that wouldn't right. normally be together. I mean, I have a lot of white friends. I grew up in Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> It's not a diverse place, but I grew up in, like, a time when I feel like hip-hop was not really, um, I don't know, it's like it wasn't accepted as mainstream as much. I think it was getting there a little bit, and now it's a lot more acceptable. I feel like Eminem was one of those people that broke some stereotypes. Right and brought people together a little bit. And, or, I mean, wh- whatever you think of his lyrics and stuff, he still brought people together in right. pretty large numbers. And people that impacted, like, me. Like, yeah. this, you know, like, he, I mean, he was from Michigan. Like, but he grew up in, like, poor trailer park yeah. of Detroit. And that connected with people who were white that grew up in, you know, and lower income, but it also impacted a lot of, like, he was, I think one of the hard things for him was trying to be more accepted in traditionally, like, black hip-hop community. So, I don't know. I think that is fascinating. So, when it's like, when people look at you, they're like, oh, I really don't want Kevin to rap. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) For sure, yeah. Because, you know, whatever, you know, I mean, I know age is a part of it, too. But sure. A lot of our church, you know, I grew up Church of Christ, and so there is this really, I don't know, we're very narrow-focused, unfortunately. So I think it's cool that you've been able, I mean, I hope you enjoy, you know, talking about some stuff that maybe you wouldn't normally talk about. So I'm just curious what you think of all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I didn't... Again, like you said, you can edit however you need. I didn't want to put you in a bind either. Oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm just meeting this guy, and he's going to start, like, throwing around you know, pondering on, like, racism and class and stuff. But, yeah, for sure. Like, I think uh, one of the big examples that I would think of right now, uh, especially since it just got put on Disney Plus this summer, right, is, like, Hamilton is a fascinating case study in the economic and racial politics of hip-hop in, like, a mainstream, right? Because what what does it mean whenever – uh, I've got elders at my church. It, it, it reaches such a wide variety of people, and it wasn't written by a black guy, a, a person of color, absolutely. And uh, frankly, let me 
clear the air here, Hamilton is a brilliant masterpiece of lyricism and history, and I think it is incredible, and yet it raises, it, it's always the wake, right? It's never the, the problem, you know, the, the product itself isn't necessarily the thing, it's everything that ripples out from it, right? And so the fact that there are so many people who are like, oh, I love Hamilton, but Kendrick Lamar, no way, like he cusses too much, or he is too political, or um, mm-hmm. And that's some of what I experience as well, right? Whenever, yeah, they're they're like, uh, yeah, I just don't, I just can't get with rap. I like it when you do it. It's it's very much this kind of like respectability politics, and it's so racially charged in a way that is so awkward to bring people's attention to because they don't, of course, I mean, like anything that has to do with racism, like they don't mean it, they don't recognize it, you know, that way, but. Um, exactly what you were talking about with, like, Eminem as well, right? Like, again, a fascinating question of, like, what does it what does it mean that the number one consumers of hip-hop music are white people and, like, white men especially? Um, whenever I've got students who listen to, like, just Eminem and NF and GEZ and just all these white rappers, I watched this great YouTube video essay, I wish I could remember the exact name about it, but it was basically, it was a white guy unpacking the problem with white rappers. He basically identified Mac Miller and uh, LP from Run the Jewels as kind of like the two white guys who are in the game, uh, Mac Miller, R.I.P., posthumously, um, but he, uh, as like people who respect the culture and earnestly like want to learn more and like celebrate the culture, versus walking such the thin line that uh, people like maybe present day Eminem and then like GEZ and all these other of not necessarily just appropriating hip hop culture, but certainly like profiting from it in a way that's disproportionate to the people who originated the medium. Well, and let's get into the idea that even like contemporary Christian music I would say bought and sold and yeah. appropriated rap music oh, and then yeah. just took out F words and put Jesus in and oh, yeah. then made millions that way. Right. Oh yeah. Well, and that's the, that's the thing too is yeah. Anything, anything that broad culture does Christian, the Christian response to it is going to do just as much. Right. So just like Elvis Presley stole a lot of his like style and everything from like blues musicians uh, so too, yeah, is, uh, our Christian rappers or Christian contemporary music. And I mean, Lecrae, another prime example, like he had a whole, you know, the last few years kind of, I don't, I don't, I'm not in a position to say like a reawakening or anything, but I love his song Facts. Like I've got it on the, uh, pre-class back whenever we had in-person class, um, <laughs> pre-class music rotation for the line. Like I want my kids to be exposed to like this idea of like, uh, man, all these people acting like I'm suddenly political, told me shut your mouth and take your checks from evangelicals. Like, we have to learn from that. Like, if, if this black Christian rapper is being told to shut up because he's not fitting what is comfortable for white evangelicals, like, that, you can't find a louder wake-up call than that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I think it's really interesting. So let's get, I guess, into your story. Like, what... When you, all that stuff we just talked about, how does that impact, how does that impact you and your, your faith? And then I guess your 
ministry too, but I think first off, like what is that? Yeah. What has that done to your own like personal faith journey? Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I appreciate that, that. Again, like I said, I haven't gotten to talk about this part of my ministry and stuff. And so it's really not what I've thought of as like an entry point into that conversation, but I, it definitely plays a part, right? Because, um, one, I went into youth ministry, not as a joke, but sort of based off of uh, something that my youth minister said pretty flippantly, and I took him way more seriously than he thought I would. Uh, it was just a Wednesday night. He said, so when are you going to go to ACU and uh, study youth ministry? And I said, well, if you really think I could do that. Um, and so we started talking about it, and, and sure enough, I changed. I wanted to do uh, – I wanted to direct movies my whole childhood. And then whenever it came time to start applying for colleges, I had to create a portfolio. And whenever it's just me and my friends that are at my disposal for making student films to submit for a portfolio, uh, it's not really a professional environment. And so I hated the process. I was like, we're not getting anything done. This sucks. And so uh, totally shifted, went to ACU, and great experience at ACU, especially through internships, just affirming um, that – Ministry was, you know, it fit my gifts, it fit my talents, and it fit my, like, motivations and what I wanted to do, because church was always uh, where my priorities lied, and I never really paid attention to that until I was getting into, a, like, a formal theological education. But it was also then that, um, you know, I was I was fortunate to grow up in a family that encouraged me to, like, think for myself, and I didn't... Uh, my parents were, they did their best to be intentional that I didn't, uh, just assume and adopt everything that they believed. Um, and so that undergrad experience was really formative for me as I started to form, I guess, my interpretive lens, right, for how I, uh, read the Bible and think about, uh, the person and work of Jesus and, the motivations and, like, nature of God. I mean, like, the real big hoity-toity things that you think of with, like, theological education. And it was then that, like, I started to recognize that uh, incongruency with how I understood topics like um, politics. And I really wouldn't have even called it politics back then because politics was still, like, very, like, civic. Like, it wasn't uh, a people kind of thing for me, right? It was... Uh, the way that I think a lot of people still think of politics of like being stuffy and technical. Um, but on the people side, I would have called it like social stuff. So things like racism, things like homophobia and transphobia and things like that. Um, and I started seeing, man, I never saw this. I never experienced this in church growing up. Uh, and as I'm getting ready to go and be a minister in these contexts, uh, I feel frankly kind of like scared because I see this difference, I see this incongruency, and I know that people aren't going to want to be challenged on it, uh, people aren't going to want to talk about it, regardless of if they're challenged or not, and uh, if I do anything to break that silence, uh, they're going to go from nice church people to not nice church people real quick. Um, so, I, I by, the time it was un by the time I finished my undergrad, I was like cautious, I guess, not fully like disillusioned or anything yet, um, but definitely knowing, kind of characterizing myself by difference, 
from like where I'd come from and the churches I would be working with. Um, so I didn't have a job upon graduation, and so I was like, okay, grad school. And uh, this guy named Nathan Russell had come to uh, Abilene and bought dinner for me and several of my friends to talk to us about Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth. Uh, it's the divinity school that is on TCU's campus. And so everything that he said was like checking all the boxes. Uh, the first box being that I wouldn't have to take any more Greek or Hebrew. And I said, sign me up, man. Um, and then, you know, some financial aid stuff was real nice. But like what he really pushed was how Bright integrated racially um, before TCU ever did. Um, before they had to, before, uh, and how Bright is really oriented toward practical theology and practical ministry with a bent toward, like, social justice. And so I was like, this is exactly everything that had sort of been absent at, during my ACU uh, education. It had been there, but I had, had to seek it out. I had, mean, it was a, it's really more of like a special interest between me and my friends and kind of this pod um, in our class, rather than actually being fully integrated into um, any of our curriculum, right? And so uh, I said, great, sounds awesome, uh, and went to grad school that fall. It ended up being the same fall that I did get the job here at Highland Oaks. And so I entered into full-time ministry, full-time seminary uh, in the fall of 2016, right before the election. So uh, things were going great. Um, and so the thing was, even though Highland Oaks would, I don't want to apply, I don't want to unfairly apply any words to uh, Highland Oaks. It is a uh, Church of Christ that other Churches of Christ might say is not really a Church of Christ because we're not super old school. We don't have pews or whatever, right? Um, so, but there's still a Church of Christ all the same. And then Bright is a mainline Protestant progressive Christian seminary. And as soon as I got into there, it was great because it was scratching all the itches, checking all the boxes that I was craving going into. Like, uh, yeah, the, the Venn diagram of my, the things I really cared about. And then like my theological education was finally converging and it was great. Um, but then I went to work and had to go every Sunday to this church where I, I was in a very real way having to ask the question, like, what do I do with any of the stuff that I'm learning um, whenever it's on such a different, it feels like such a different universe from uh, where the majority of my church is. Um, and not wanting to, not wanting to hurt anybody, but feeling like no matter what I did, you know, if I, if I didn't apply what I was learning or if I didn't, push for XYZ social cause or uh, justice cause, then I was being complicit and hurting uh, vulnerable populations and minorities. Uh, or if I pushed for it at church and like did uh, lean into these things, then I would be overstepping and hurting the people in my congregation and trying to give them more than they can handle. Um, and so that first year of grad school especially was really it just felt like being pulled in two opposite directions, let alone the fact that I was going in with two of my best friends from high, from the high school from ACU uh, who were in a different place uh, in their faith than I was. And in that, I, I'm like a pretty stubborn person. Like, 
I'm pretty bought in on being a Christian, uh, regardless of if there's, you know, a great body of evidence to the contrary, right? I'm like, you know what? I still want to choose this, and so I'm going to. Um, and I'll figure it out along the way. Whereas my other friends were just not, uh, just not in a good place. And so as they were learning a lot of, like, critical theory and uh, interpretation, everything at Bright, it just became more and more uh, heavy for them. And a lot of the things that I wanted to try and learn to redeem, they lost interest in redeeming. And that's not an indictment on them. It is more of uh, they, yeah, they, they were looking for maybe, maybe they weren't looking for it, but I think they needed some reasons to believe in church and in Christianity. And maybe uh, critical interpretation of the Bible and, like, historicity and all this uh, did not give that to them. Um, and so that was really tough, too, because we were, you know, those roads that had been pretty together were all of a sudden, you know, coming to a fork, and I didn't know how to handle that because there wasn't anything I could say or do that they, you know, we had the same education, we had the same resources, um, we were just doing different things with them and so that was really tough as well and it was never like anything like uh like I felt obligated to like save them or change their mind like I think all of our theologies had progressed like past that point where that really wasn't a concern it was very much like feeling you know they told me that they didn't think less of me for like staying in our faith tradition um that had hurt them and everything and yet at the same time I always felt that tension of like whatever I do say about any given thing is still going to be the, through the lens of the knowledge that like, I am now a part of the institution that has served them. So mm-hmm. um, what, what do you think you learned when you, you know, I'm sure you learned all sorts of things during that period of full-time ministry, full-time student, and then being, you know, different places like, you know, theologically and, you know, socially, what, you know, do you have like one or two things, two, one or two things you look back and think that's really what I learned in that period? Yeah. Um, other than the seemingly bleak lesson of like, students just don't remember anything you teach. <laughs> like, and that sounds, it, that's not like a feudalistic thing at all. Like, I still love teaching and I hold that very, you know, I'm very well aware of that. And also because I look back on my time in youth group, and even if it were a week after I'd heard a lesson, like, I really can't remember many lessons uh, specifically, right, from my time in youth group. But, you know, if I, if I could, like, go back and tell myself something um, and somehow get myself to, like, really trust that advice, it would be just that, like, you have permission and it is okay to be attentive to your church first and not be obligated to um, the things that you feel like you should be doing. Um, That was something that took me a long time to receive from some trusted friends who had been in ministry for a long time and who had uh, similar beliefs to me. Um, Because I think I just suffered from a lot of like imposter syndrome in a lot of different ways. Whenever I was at school, I was the closet, closet evangelical working for practically, like, the enemy, as far as some of those people were concerned. And whenever I was at church, I was uh, the closet, like, progressive who was at, like, his hyper-radical seminary. And so 
Um, I felt like I didn't really belong in either place. And so if I could go back and tell myself, like, you, you are, like, doing fine. Like, you don't – all this stress and anxiety of am I doing enough in either arena um, is not actually – it's not helpful, and it's really not anything anyone was really paying attention to at the end of the day. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think I know what you mean because I I've been a you know just a one example of being a Christian that's you know I would consider fairly I guess conservative. <laughs> it's not my favorite word, sure, but yeah. I think there's a lot of things about me that are very conservative. Christian. Yep. I read the Bible, I believe. Right, yeah. True in a sense. You know, right there is yeah. fairly conservative. Right. Um so I worked at Starbucks for like four or five years and I was, you know, I was like the Christian nerd there. Right. You know, I was the only one that went to church and so I think I understand that a little bit. Um Yeah. I think telling myself that it's okay to hold middle ground as well. Right. I think I really I think especially at the very beginning, whenever it was in the middle of like the, the election and everything, uh, I really bought into a left versus right, black and white uh, view, not only of topics, but especially of people um, way more than was healthy or helpful. So it was really nice to have that perspective going into this election cycle and being like, ah, I have learned like I, I it turns out I'm growing as a person. Um, but yeah, to be able to, cause I, I think that really was like that feeling pulled between two sides made me feel yucky for being like in the middle in the meantime. And so being able to, yeah, to have learned that like that middle space is, is okay and does not make me like a corrupt, complicit person for the worst of either side. Yeah. I think, um, there's a lot of gray area for in sure. life. Um, what, you know, what do you feel like or maybe like a period of time or a mo- moment of time in your life that you felt kind of like distant from God? So I call these kind of like winter faith moments. And I'm curious what those have been like for you, like a period, a season, a moment, you know, yeah. where you're just like, man, I'm I'm not feeling close to God. And then kind of going along with that. What, like, what did you do with that and where are you now, um, with those things? Yeah. Um, so I think that really is, um, that, that, I don't even know if I could call it conflict. It was a conflict, but you know, that, that looming tension with my two best friends during, uh, grad school was, was probably the closest, uh, to, you know, a moment or, or, yeah, what you would describe as winter faith. I was thinking, because I, you know, I'd heard you kind of describe winter faith in previous episodes and stuff before, and I feel like if I had to describe my faith would be, like, more like an autumn faith, and that I haven't, like, I haven't personally experienced a lot of crisis or hardship, right? I have lived, like, a pretty uh, privileged, pretty lucky life, right? There hasn't been a whole lot of heavy loss or, like, just way out there moments for me yet I'm positive they're coming but at the same time it is my attention to and listening to people who have gone through that that like fuels probably the majority if not all of my understanding of God right and so it's, it's sort of preemptive 
Um, so while I haven't experienced it myself, that is always where my attention has been. And so with that, with, with that conflict with my friends, um, you know, maybe that keeps me from like ever feeling especially close to God where, where I, I never, uh, I never necessarily recognize like, wow, I feel really distant from God because the highs are never super high. And so the lows never feel especially low either. Um, I don't know if you do any Enneagram work. I'm an Enneagram mm-hmm. nine. Um, uh, with yeah, I've wing. done a few episodes on Enneagram. Yeah, so. so yeah, so I'm a nine wing eight, um, and I only decided I'm a wing eight because I'm not so conflict averse that like I don't want to hear the hot gossip. Um, I'm like I'll hear about other people's conflicts, but as soon as it's pointed at me, that is where I will I will turtle shell, and you will never hear from me again. Um, but yeah, and so I feel like that keeps me pretty, um, you know, rubber banding pretty well. Um, Pretty in the middle, but yeah, that time with my friends, and especially as that I watched that impact like their marriage as well, and just not feeling like I could be the friend that they needed, um, just because I didn't feel secure in who I was um, or who or where I guess I thought God was in any of that too. Um, was it was just like a really lonely time, um, and that was something. You know, I would keep myself busy. Honestly, I think through all of grad school, even as I gained greater clarity by the time I was getting to the end of it and, and realized, like, that I could be more comfortable and secure with, like, who I was and, like, where I was in ministry and everything, um, there were still just moments. I, I remember, man, it might have even been last year um, or maybe a year and a half ago that I was just sitting on my couch out here and I was, like, wrapping up some email or something and I just, like, said out loud for the first time, like, I am so lonely. And I just had never named that for myself. Um, and I never really believed it either because I had sort of built this identity of, like, being the exception in my context, right, of, like, I am someone in the Church of Christ who doesn't necessarily theologically identify as, like, with the Church of Christ. Um, but that's a good thing, and I'm holding tension and holding space, and that's that's great. And I had built it around, like, ah, oh, isn't that, like, cool and unique? And, like, I can really sink my teeth into that uh, and just totally ignored the isolation I was feeling in the midst of that as well. Um, self-imposed because I had people who were checking up on me and, like, had a good support system. And yet there I was just feeling, like, so lonely. Um, so in the midst of that, I mean, yeah, I think, one, naming that and and that can be difficult you know that can be chalked up to an Instagram thing too um that it just it just takes a while sometimes for me to like catch up to myself and like actually realize oh here's what was really happening um that's happened in a lot of conversations with my wife right where I come back and I'm like listen I was defensive because I felt stupid right <laughs> and I don't like feeling stupid and so but here I am and it's embarrassing and I'm sorry and it's inevitably and invariably good and productive and helpful to to do that and so um you know being able to name that and then being able to be honest with other people it's so funny the whole practice once you preach thing because I always tell my students like as soon as you tell someone something else like the strongest words in our language is me too right and even if someone doesn't have the exact same experience as you the fact that everyone's going through something uh you just need to know that you're not alone and so um have, you know, I've had access to spiritual direction, so that's been helpful. Um, yeah, and just, 
I think also a little bit of sidestep from it. Uh, I really experienced God primarily through beauty. Um, whether that's through art, a lot of the time it's through art, whether it's books or movies, especially, or shows or whatever, but stories, um, and the way that that conveys beauty to me, uh, is really, really helpful. And so whenever I am in like those low moments, I always find God in just moments where I can say like, that is beautiful. I can't believe that the most beautiful place I've ever been is the desert. Like this is moving me so like so deeply. Um, so yeah, just to, and maybe that matches up with the autumn faith too. If like I see desolation, I'm like, yes, God is here. Very good. Thanks for listening to this show today, everybody. I just want to give a few shout outs. Today's music, the one and only Josh Cleveland. Today's artwork and all the winter faith artwork and digital design, Dominique Montaigne. The intro was done by Scarlet Fox, and I am just grateful to be creating and editing this podcast. My name is Andy Frazier. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Winter Faith Podcast. Subscribe subscribe on all those platforms, and also we are on Patreon if you would like to support the show, and also leave a review on iTunes at The Winter Faith Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.